Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory or even the quality of an older person's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with a guest, Mary Hume. Mary is a licensed clinical social worker specialized in geriatrics and has particular deep experience in helping families with dementia. She served as the primary clinical social worker for a large memory disorders clinic for over 12 years and then founded her own consultation practice here in the Bay Area in 2013. Geriatricians such as myself really value and depend on the skills and knowledge of our social work colleagues because they're often much better than we are at helping families manage the practical challenges of caregiving, especially when it comes to a challenging condition such as Alzheimer's or related dementia. Mary has also in recent years developed a particular interest in new technologies that can help people. And in 2014, she co-authored a book titled Caring from Afar, A Guide to Home Sensor Systems for Aging Parents. So I'm thrilled to have Mary join me here today to talk about her work and how to make family caregiving more manageable. Mary, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Okay. So I thought we might start um, by talking a little bit about your work as a geriatric social worker, because I think people often don't realize, um, don't quite understand what that is. So can, can you tell the audience a little bit about what is a geriatric social worker and what led you to pursue this kind of work? Absolutely. So nobody really knows what a social worker does. I often joke that we do everything except prescribe medication. Um, but after 21 years um, as a social worker, um, we pretty much do what we can to make sure that our clients get the care that they need. And especially with geriatric clients, clients that are older, uh, making sure that they're not getting the care that they don't need and that the care that they do not want. Mm -hmm. And when you say care, you're thinking not only of sort of medical care or health care, but you're thinking of kind of um, care in a broader way, right? What kind of care are we talking about? Correct. When someone is 75, 85, 95, their goals are different. What they want out of life changes. Um, and so as a geriatric social worker, care manager, consultant, it is really working with my clients and oftentimes the adult children um, to help them understand and respect what their parents want and what they need. And again, what they don't want. Right. Yeah. And uh, I'm always so grateful to be able to work with um, social workers, especially the ones who have particular experience with aging adults, like the geriatric social workers, because on one hand, I see them, you know, kind of helping manage some challenging conversations between families. And then, you know, they often know of lots of resources in the community that we might be able to access to help an older person um, meet those goals. So it's really, you know, always such a treat to be able to work with people like you. Now, what led you to pursue this career? 
Um, well, I grew up with a mom who was a social worker and worked with children. So, of course, I could not go down that route. Right. And after many years, I decided that, guess what? I probably, the only thing I'm good at is social work. Um, and I applied to UC Berkeley after doing many stints of working with older adults and fell in love with it. And I feel so privileged and so honored um, to call myself a geriatric social worker. Mm-hmm. So um, now let's talk a little bit about safety. So safety is often a big concern for families, but often uh, less so for older adults, or they're often resisting that focus on safety. And my understanding is that safety used to be a pretty important focus for social workers as well, and for uh, many of the rest of us in healthcare, but that since then we've sort of developed a more nuanced approach. So now what are the priorities when a social worker uh, starts helping an older person and the family? I think, well, when I was in graduate school, we were drilled that safety, safety, safety was um, sort of the, the primary goal. I'm pleased to say over the last 10 or 15 years, that's changed. It, it has become new, more nuanced. Um, my older adults, yes, they care about safety. They're worried about safety, but they also want dignity. They want self-determination. Um, and that often collides with what their adult children want and or expect. So I spend a lot of time doing mediation. Um, trying to help the older adults get the respect, the safety, the self-determination that they want um, while informing the adult children that they cannot force their parents uh, to do the things that they wish or hope that they would do. Right. So sometimes I feel like as professionals, you know, we feel like we have to err on the side of safety lest someone later on accuse us that, you know, because we didn't push it enough, the person fell at home and got hurt or, or wandered away. Because often the things that keep people technically safer, uh, you know, are, are restrictive. They involve more supervision or, you know, limiting the person from what they say that, that they want to do. So do you have any suggestions for the audience on how um, or for those people who, uh, and, and I've had actually adult children, you know, tell me this, that they're, some of them are worried that their siblings will be upset that the closer sibling who, you know, was more hands-on didn't push safety more. So what's a way to kind of, um, navigate that? Well, what I tell my adult children is that I, as a parent, don't want my children telling me what to do now. And I don't want them telling me what to do when I'm 80. Um, and so unless someone is extremely demented, um, cognitively impaired, at great risk, then I err on the side of respecting what the older adult wants. Mm -hmm. No, that's definitely a good approach. I find that it also um, helps me to kind of, uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, the older person's goals. Mm -hmm. But I find that it helps me to bring that up with the family and also document it in my own work that they said that these were their highest priority goals and that they said or expressed a preference to sort of take some safety risks because those other goals 
related to autonomy and self-determination were, were, were more important. And that in light of that, we decided that it was that we would accept certain, uh, certain risks to honor that, that preference. And so I tell people sometimes that I feel like it's different if we've gone through that very deliberate process and written that down, that, that if somebody after that falls, it's not the same as if we never had a conversation and talked about right. it. Absolutely. I often find that that helps me feel better about it. Yes. And I had a very moving experience about 10 years ago when I worked in the memory clinic with um, Cindy, a dear friend and nurse. Um, and we had a gentleman who had fairly advanced dementia and was living in a trailer. And we met with him and his three daughters. And the three daughters said, dad wants to stay in his trailer. And the doctors all said, he will fall. Uh, he may not be found. He may lay in his trailer for days. Um, and so we asked the family to go back and think about it. And they returned about three months later. And the daughters, tearful, said, we're keeping our dad in his trailer. That's where he wants to die. Mm. And I've never forgotten that. Mm -hmm. And he did die there. Yeah. He did. Well, it's uh, it's beautiful that they were able to honor his his wishes in that way. And, um, you know, I've come across it, especially in the United Kingdom, this idea of positive risk taking in dementia, where they sort of say that to aim for perfect safety is is too restrictive and too limiting. And that instead, the goal should be to take carefully considered risks and allow people to, to take those risks. So, so I'll put a link to um, some information about that in the show notes, because I think some of the audience might be, be interested in it. Do you think that here in the United States as a society, we're becoming more amenable to that positive risk-taking approach? I do. I do. It, it's a long time coming, and I think we have a long way to go. Um, but yes, mm -hmm. I think it's, uh, especially the 80-year-olds are saying, you know what? give me my cane, give me my walking stick, let me hike a trail. And if I fall, let me fall. Mm -hmm. Okay. So of course, the idea would be if we could enable people to have as much autonomy, self-determination and dignity as possible while still reducing the risks that come up when people are, are physically frail or um, have developed memory problems. And so, so these days, people sometimes ask me, isn't there a technology to help with some of these key safety issues. So maybe we can first start um, with you telling us what are the safety issues that you get asked about the most when it comes to families and older people who are cognitively impaired or have a diagnosis of dementia or, or Alzheimer's? I think the two, one is if they fall mm -hmm. and the second one is if they wander off. Right. Yeah. Those are the two. And what about kitchen safety? Does that come up for you a lot too? Uh, not too much. My clients with dementia usually stop using the stove. Mm -hmm. um, and if they are, we just pull the knobs off. Right. Okay. So, so yeah, so you did co-author a book a few years ago about these newer home sensor systems. How did you become interested in these new technologies that are being developed? Um, I was looking at technology or products that were low cost and non-invasive that could help my clients, many of whom are very independent, 
quite demented, um, not willing to have a caregiver in the house. Uh, in many cases, the caregiver would be sitting there watching them, sort of babysitting them. So I was really interested in finding a technology that could not monitor movement, but monitor lack of movement. Mm -hmm. In other words, if my client was not moving around the way we expected or I expected, then we would be alerted. And so that's how I got involved with the home sensor systems. And I still really feel strongly that there is potential for them. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit uh, more about them. How do they, um, how do they work? What can they help with? So I guess probably a good example is a client named Irene and um, she, well, at the time was in her eighties here in the Bay area, very vibrant, still driving, playing bridge, going to exercise, um, but living alone, a widow and her sons who lived within an hour away uh, would call her, check on her about once a week. Um, but the concern was if something happened, they may not know for a day or two. And so they actually installed one of these home sensor systems um, and they set it up because Irene is up and around every morning by around 6.30 or 7. So they set it up so that if she was not up and moving by 8.30, uh, they would get an alert through an app on their phone. Uh, and one morning they did. They got the alert. And after calling their mom for 5, 10 minutes, they called a neighbor and asked the neighbor who had a key to the house to go check on their mom. And he went in the house and he found Irene laying next to her bed. Um, she was alert. She was awake, but she was unable to move her left side. Mm. So they called the ambulance. She was taken to the hospital and they discovered that she had had a small stroke. Um, if this system had not been in place because the kids called every couple of days and she was busy and they were busy, um, there's a very good chance that she could have laid on the floor next to her bed for one or maybe two days. And as you know, um, the longer you wait to treat a stroke, the worse the um, outcomes. Oh, yeah. So, and just so lying in bed or on the floor for days is, is not good. Correct. Mm -hmm. So this, this is a perfect example of how um, this type of system was able to help her. Well, that's great. That system work. Now, can you tell the audience a little bit more? Like, what does it actually look like? A home sensor system? Like, what needs to be, what needs to be put in? Well, it depends on the system. So, some systems have these little um, sensors that you can put on the cupboard, or you can put on the fridge that tells when the fridge is open or closed. Um, with Irene's case, she had a motion sensor, and so when the motion sensor was not when it did not go off, um, it sent out an alert. Mm -hmm. um, they also have pads that you can put under chairs or beds to show if somebody's moving around or not. Right. So these are not like video. They're mostly sort of, they sense, no. you know, movement or things opening and closing. And I actually had a patient whose family set one up, an older lady in her early nineties who had some mild dementia. And, and I, if I remember right, they, you just kind of plug them into the outlets 
And what was nice was that this lady didn't really notice them. What are some of the advantage of these? And, you know, I feel like people often ask about one of those alerts that people wear, right? So when do you recommend a wearable alert versus a home sensor system? Or, you know, how does one choose between them? Well, I think the home sensor system is good for people with dementia. Um, my client never knew she had the sensor system in the home. Um, with the alert, if you're talking about the PERS, the, per, the, the one that you wear around your neck. Yeah, and PERS stands for uh, P-E-R-S, Personal Emergency. Personal Emergency Response System. Right, uh-huh. And so now they have ones that have accelerometers so that if you fall, they will alert somebody. I would not recommend that for someone with moderate to advanced dementia. Uh, they don't actually know what it's for. Um, worst case scenario, they look down, they see a button, and they just start pressing it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the PERS alert is good for someone that has had a fall. And usually then they get really scared. And so they're willing to wear it. And they're waterproof. Um, and I tried one out, actually, for a few weeks and wore it around my house. I wore it in the shower. I wore it in the backyard. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I found actually that it worked quite well. Um, one thing I did learn, though, is that you cannot, um, you cannot just sort of shuffle to the floor. You mm -hmm. have to have a real fall for the accelerometer to work. It can't be that you sort of get dizzy and sit down. Mm -hmm. It will not set the alarm off. So if you kind of sink down, that's right. unlikely to that's trigger it. Although you can yeah. push the button at that point. Of course. Of if, course. If but you, if, you're, if, you remember. if you're that dizzy and shrinking down, you may not remember to press the button. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm personally of the opinion that if someone's going to wear one of those personal emergency devices they should have one with the automatic fall detection because um, because studies have found that uh, a quite significant number of people when they fall don't push the button. Right. Either either because they're confused or because they're badly injured or, you know, it seems some of them are embarrassed. Or they're in shock. Right. And if you hit your head in the shower or the bathtub and fall, yeah, they're not going to push the button. So people have sometimes told me that they've looked into those personal emergency response um, systems, which tend to come as either a pendant or a bracelet. Although I think the bracelet ones usually don't have an accelerometer. I don't believe so. I think all the ones with automatic fall detection you have to wear around your neck. And right. people often say that, you know, it's kind of overwhelming to choose between them. And I know you don't like to recommend specific services publicly, but do you have any suggestions to help people sort out which one might be a good choice if they're if they're looking into one of those systems? I think if uh, probably Lifeline is one of the better known ones. Mm -hmm. um, I try not to recommend specific companies, but they've been around a long time. Right. Yeah. And I know I know the the the. Um, one of the head persons there. So um, they they are the ones that lent me the product um, and got my feedback. So, And any particular features that people should think about? I think there are lots of options often. Well, I think they need to get the one that has the microphone in it. Mm -hmm. You don't need the box. There's ones that have the microphone actually in the pendant. Mm-hmm. And I think the accelerometer is a good thing. 
Yeah, I think people don't always realize that, that for some of those, um, some of those devices, like to actually speak to the responder, some of them have the microphone at the base station. And so if you're doesn't help if you're in the, the shower, room, you're sort of hollering. <laughs> I, I guess if there's been an alert and they can't hear you, they'll figure something's wrong. But that just seems certainly uh, more limited. Exactly. Than, than I mean, if, if you you're fall, able to hear them. fall in the shower and, and you're sitting in the shower and the water's running, but you're, you know, you're scared, you may want to be able to push the button and talk to somebody and say, call my son. Um, it doesn't always have to be a 911 call. So that that allows you a little bit more freedom about who to call and what to do. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A while back, we had Richard Caro on the the show. Um, I forget which episode it was, but I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And and uh, he had sort of created a, a selection guide for personal emergency response systems. I don't know if he's updated it sense. But I remember it, it was helpful because it kind of encouraged people to think through when there's an alert, does it go to a professional answering system right. versus a family member or neighbor? Does it have or the, straight to 911 or straight to 911? Does it have the microphone kind of right there in the device that you're wearing um, or not? And I forget the other sort of features that he had GPS. Yes. Yeah. So do some of them have GPS? They do. They do. Um, I'm, I'm not quite convinced about how good the GPS is on these products at this point. Mm -hmm. So I guess the point of GPS would be that it could provide you with some assistance if you're outside your house, because otherwise they, they presumably have some range that's kind of like the old mobile landlines, right? You can kind of walk through the house, but once you start getting out into your garden, it starts to, uh, to rapidly fade. Correct. Well, actually, the one I had was okay in the backyard in the garden. So there is some breadth to it. Um, But I think for if you're out and about and at the mall or the parking garage, um, then you want to look at one with GPS. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for people, um, and there are a lot of people, especially with mild dementia, who are still quite active and are out and about on their own. So what are the options for supporting them in terms of uh, addressing safety issues in a way that doesn't infringe too much on their their autonomy or, or freedom to move around? What do you often recommend for families? Well, I mean, if they can use a smartphone... That's what I would recommend because they have an app called Find My Friend. And so you can connect that with everybody you know. Um, otherwise, probably Great Call is another product that, that has very good reviews um, and has built-in GPS. And you can just push a button for help. So that would be a, a wearable pendant that has GPS. So that um... Well, you actually can put it on your belt or put it in your purse. Oh, well, that's good for people who don't want to wear something. Right. And does that help if somebody is wandering? Because that's often a concern, a safety concern that you mentioned earlier. Well, the problem is they have to actually push the button. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if someone's that demented, um, they're probably not aware that they're wandering. And so there are other products. There are those insoles. Mm Mm-hmm where they have built-in GPS. Uh, the problem is you have to make sure they have the shoes on before they wander off and they do have to be charged. Mm. So you have to have somebody to charge them. How often do they have to be charged? 
um, I believe every 48 to 72 hours. Mm-hmm. So just for me to make sure uh, I understand, it sounds like something like Great Call is not constantly broadcasting your GPS location. No, you have to push a button. So that's not good for someone with dementia. It can't be used like find my friend. It, it's just that if they have a problem and the alert is triggered, it signals where the person is. Um, otherwise, you need something that does constantly broadcast the GPS signal. And so that's either a smartphone app right. or there are special insoles that you put into the shoes that have GPS and will broadcast where somebody is. Yes. And they are coming out with watches. They continue to GPS watches, um, which are huge. So I'm keeping an eye on that. We'll see if they come up with one that could actually fit my wrist. Have Have they uh, actually come out with them? Because I feel like at some of the oh yeah. innovation conferences, they keep they keep saying they're they're going to be releasing it. And oh no no, they've come out with them. They've but come they out with a few. Are gigantic. Mm, mm-hmm. There, it's like wearing a um, clock oh, on your wrist. Right. <laughs> I guess it's because they're designed so that you can use them independently of the smartphone. Right. Because someone may not have one or may forget to take Most it with them. Most of my clients don't have a smartphone. And if they do, they don't know how to use it. Right. Okay. So we are moving towards uh, GPS devices that can help you find somebody. Correct. And they're wearable on the wrist, but they're still really big. Yes. Anything else that's available for for people who wander? They're coming out with jewelry. Um Again, you got to make sure they wear the jewelry. Mm-hmm. Um, they've come out with sort of labels that you can tuck into the back of pants. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, we no, we we have nothing really at this point um, that I would consider a a, a good option. Mm-hmm. Right. And I remember in the United Kingdom again that there was um, a conversation a few years ago about the ethics of GPS insoles and, and tracking somebody's location. Is this something that you talk about with the families that, that you work with? I remember at the time it was brought to my attention. It, it occurred to me that I felt like we were talking about this much less in the U S than they were, but sometimes in Europe, they um, have sort of more interest in people's privacy than I think uh, we do in the United States. As far as I'm concerned, if you have someone that is so demented that they actually need to be wearing some sort of device to find them. I really have no problem with that. If if insoles are going to get them back home safely, um, I'm all for it. I had a client about a year ago who walked out of an assisted living over here in the city, um, went out through a side door, was not discovered missing for five hours. Oh, my. And they found him in San Jose oh. 10 hours later. Um, so if a pair of insoles that could have tracked him down within a few hours would have kept him from hypothermia, pneumonia, and almost dying, I'm all for the insoles. Yeah. And to kind of come back to, you know, a kind of mental framework to support people, you know, it's that the likely benefits sort of outweigh the the issue of of uh, consent, especially when somebody has reached the point at which they probably can't consent to to and be monitored. And he was monitor. apparently trying to get to Marin. Oh, poor thing. His goal was Marin, so he 
unfortunately went the wrong direction. Yeah. Now, do you think it's a good idea for people when they're first diagnosed with dementia, especially if it's, you know, early on in the the condition and they're still able to have a lot of conversations about their future and what they'd want? Do you think it's it's a good thing for families to, to discuss with their Absolutely. loved one? Like, how would you feel about having insoles or us, you know, putting a tracker on if, if you've been wandering or later when you're more confused and not able to talk about it? I probably would not get that specific. I would say, um, would you allow us to do what we need to do to keep you safe? And then I would also ask, and what is your vision of safety? Because that's different for everybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. So it's a broader conversation. Right, right. So yeah, so how can families think through this and figure out what they need in terms of you know safety and technology? Because I think people often feel a little lost and overwhelmed trying to figure it out. I know they do. So when I sit down with families, I start with a person and say, what is your understanding of what's important to them? Um, what are their goals? What are their priorities? Um, how do they want to continue to live? Uh, and then from there, we come up with a care plan. Mm-hmm. And I assume you also talk to the older person themselves, if you're able to, to sort of uh, give them a chance. If they're mild to moderate, I will sit down and actually talk with them separately. So there's not a lot of pressure. Um, but if they're moderate to more advanced dementia, I tend to talk to, to the family separately because I don't want to make the person feel uncomfortable or like we're talking behind their back. Right, right. And um, so obviously it's hugely helpful. So one approach that families can take to figure this out is to find someone like you. So first they have to know that somebody like you exists. And so how do they find a geriatric social worker to help them have these conversations? Um, well, they can Google geriatric social workers. They can Google me. Uh, I also work with a lot of social workers in the East Bay and in the peninsula. Um, but you're right. People don't know we exist. And usually after I meet a family, they say, gosh, I wish I knew about you and my mom or my dad um, when we were struggling. So I'm trying to get the word out that there are people like me that can be helpful. Right. And what about um, the Alzheimer's Association? Do you find that oh, that's yeah. often helpful to, because I know they have groups and support groups. Is that another way that people absolutely might get some of that support? And Family Caregiver Alliance is very good. Oh, yeah. We'll put a link. We'll put a link to, to their site also in the show notes. And then also some people are able to get care through uh, memory clinics, which is where you were for, for a long time. And that's, you know, one of the advantages of those clinics is that instead of seeing just the doctor right. or a nurse, you see a whole team. And that team usually includes a social worker with experience similar to yours. Correct. So absolutely, you get neurology, you get neuropsychology, you get social work. Uh, so it's a good, a very good resource. Mm -hmm. Any other technologies that, that you found particularly helpful for families who are helping a loved one with dementia or to, to help people who, who've actually been diagnosed with a condition? I still think actually the home sensor systems, even though they're kind of going out of style, 
um, are really a great resource. Happy to talk to people about them. Um, the pendants work well. Um, and then having an OT come into the house and do a home safety evaluation, I think is really, really important. Um, physical therapy, occupational therapy. Uh, people don't always remember to ask their doctors for that, but a physician can do a referral and that can make a lot of difference. Right. And kind of uh, finding ways to support the person's independence so that they can stay, stay at home. home for as long as possible. Well, great. Well, Mary, thank you so very much. This has been really, uh, really helpful to hear these suggestions from you. Do you have any last suggestions for the audience on how we can, you know, maybe work towards a society that becomes more dementia friendly and better at supporting people in maintaining as much self-determination and autonomy and dignity, even as they have this condition that's, you know, slowly reducing their, their mental abilities? Well, I think for me, it is to really remember and understand that dementia is a brain disease. We should not blame people for it. We don't blame people that have diabetes or cancer. Uh, dementia, sometimes people look very healthy, um, but they are suffering and we need to respect that and we need to take a different approach. Good thoughts to finish with. Thank you, Mary. My pleasure. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes. And I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.